0: we've always been here every single year from ancient gays right up to today see history is queer some think it's a new way but we've got something to say history is very
1: very very very
0: everyone lee here for a fun bonus interview episode i'm very excited to bring to you today a conversation with my new friend kit Hayam. they are a leeds based uh, in the uk awareness trainer heritage practitioner writer and academic they have written for academic publications as well as articles for notches and the public medievalist I believe you also just recently did an article on Joan of Arc, which was really fun. We're going to be chatting today about trans shit. Heck yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, Kit's newest book, Before We Were Trans, came out in the UK in June, I believe, and it's coming out in the US mid-September. And it illuminates the stories of people across the globe from antiquity to the present whose experiences of gender have defied binary categories. And so we're going to have a conversation today about trans stuff and about gender stuff and how do you talk about trans history before we have the word trans, uh, which is something that we do a lot on this podcast. I'm so excited to get into conversations about language and just the work that Kit has done. So uh, hi, Kit. Hello. How are you?
1: Finally, I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. Really excited to talk about all the trans stuff and all the trans history. (laughs) Heck yeah, as you say.
0: Trans stuff forever. Yes um yeah i uh i think we were we were talking a little bit off mic about how a couple of of friends a couple of folks you know in in this world had had mentioned to me like oh hey there's this person who's coming out with this book you should check it out and i was literally going to be going and pressing free order when your publicist emailed me and was like hi would you like to have kit on your podcast to talk about this book i will send you a copy and I was like, great, this is awesome. I love it when these things converge. And I'm like, this is something that I already wanted to read. So I'm, I'm really glad that we got to connect. And it is, uh, you're in the UK, so it's morning for me. And it's probably what, late at night for you?
1: It's not late at night. It's, it's 7 not o'clock. Late. It's probably, probably o'clock about 7. Um, yeah. yeah so yeah glad we could find the time to line up and it wasn't the middle of the night (laughs) for either of us
0: right yeah yeah definitely well I mean we'll just kind of start with getting to know a little bit about you I mean I mentioned that you do a couple of different things that you do you know trans awareness and kind of trans competency training you're a heritage practitioner which I would love to hear more about and obviously you're a writer and a historian so could you tell uh, folks who are listening just a little bit more about you and your background and how you got into this work
1: hi sure so I've been working working in I guess what you might call queer history activism for quite a while mm. um, and that's actually kind of how I came to my own queerness in a way. Um, the first queer activist group that I dipped a toe in the water of was a lovely group called York LGBT History Month. Um, I know LGBT History Month is a different month in the U.S. from what it is in the U.K. In the U.K. it's February which is right, the shortest yeah. month, and the month in to which we try and pack all of our history. Well, it's funny because
0: you have because because you have them switched. Yes, yeah, we have ours in October. October. Switched, yeah, yeah. Because you have it, and you have Black History Month in October, yeah. and we have our LGBT History Month uh, and our Black History Month in February.
1: Yeah, I'm not sure how that happens, but um, in any case, yeah. So I started off um, dipping a little toe in the water of queer activism, and um, that was because I was researching for my PhD study. I was researching. Edward II, a 14th century king who um, mm-hmm. almost certainly had relationships with his male servants and favourites on the side of his marriage. And I was researching particularly how his queer reputation got built up. And so I was one of those, probably many queer people have been in this place, but I was one of those people who was just a very, very enthusiastic ally. And so I was going to do the activism because I was a very enthusiastic ally. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I'm just
0: really inspired by by people's perseverance it, and their story. They're so brave.
1: Exactly. Um, <laughs> and But it was through doing that LGBT History Month work, um, organizing a program of events um, for LGBT History Month in York, where I was living at the time, that I sort of forced that forced me really to work out why I was doing this and to articulate to myself um, why I cared so much about (laughs) um, queer rights. Um, And that was when I came out as trans. And um, I very much came to, like I said, came to my own queerness through history, partly through the activism and partly also because one of the ways that I'd found queer community, even before I understood fully what that was to me was by feeling a sense of emotional connection to queer people in the past. Mm. And that's kind of why that question of what we do with the emotional connections we feel to people in the past um, sort of underpins a lot of the stuff that I've written about in Before We Were Trans, because I think it's really easy for queer people who write about queer history to be dismissed as biased or not objective because we feel things, but actually everybody feels something about history. It's just (laughs) that some of our emotions are stigmatized as less objective um, or less valid um, or more likely to lead us astray than others.
0: Or explained away as ahistorical.
1: Exactly. Um,
0: Yeah. Well, so I mean, moving into that is what brought you to... Before we were trans, right? So you were working on writing about Edward II. How did you come to this project, which is very global, very broad, expansive? How did you go about your research and how much of the material were you familiar with when you started?
1: So... It took a while to take shape. And where it started was when I went to a heritage conference again in York as part of my LGBT History Month work. And I met a fantastic historian, a fantastic historian and archaeologist called Claire Corkill, who was working. She's from the Isle of Man, and she was working on researching um, an internment camp on the Isle of Man called Nocello, which um, I write about in the book, where during the First World War, tens of thousands of people who were assigned male at birth were interned in this camp on the Isle of Man. And during the First World War, a significant number of those people lived as female full time within that internment camp. And she told me about this. And then she said, oh, but we can't really talk about them as trans because we don't know why they did it. And we don't know if they lived as women afterwards. And that was really interesting to me because my instinct was to say, oh, yeah, you're right. You know, whether they lived as women afterwards is the real measure of whether they were really trans. And then the more I thought about that, and also the further I moved with my own trans experience and with things like trying to get healthcare, for which you also have to prove whether you are really trans Mm -hmm. or not, um, the more I quote, exactly very much quote unquote. Um, the more I started to question where those standards of really trans came from, why something that quote unquote only happened for four years doesn't count, why we can't talk about that as a kind of trans experience, and how those standards of what we think of as real transness are affecting the stories from history that we feel able to talk about as trans history, and so it was through thinking about Nokelo that I came to thinking about these issues more widely, about how the standards that we're bringing to histories of gender nonconformity are restrictive ones that have been shaped by our own contemporary narrow ideas of what a real trans person looks like. Um, And it was my editor who said, but this is a global history. And my response to that initially was to say, you're right, but I don't know if I'm the right person to write about that. Um, I write in the book a bit about how I wrestled with whether actually as a white person, it was my place to tell stories um, that were not from my culture and that were not from my experience. And the way that I dealt with that in the book, and I, yeah, I'm really open to ongoing conversations about whether this is the best way to handle it, was to think about how we can make the case for writing anti-racist trans histories and how I could use the platform that i got with the book to do that, to emphasize that it's incredibly important, that it's essential to take people's experiences of gender on their own cultural terms, to not impose Western ideas of transness or Western ideas of binary gender onto cultures where those don't fit. Um, mm-hmm. And also to use these histories to expose the development of things like the gender binary and the sex binary as themselves racist social constructs. And so... That was how the global aspect of the book took shape, was thinking about what kind of good can I do by telling a global history? What kind of anti-racist work can I do? by telling those stories. Yeah, that was the direction in which
0: that led me. Yeah, we we definitely uh on this podcast continually come up against that is the very idea of heterosexuality, the very idea of uh strict gender uh binary categories is in itself inherently colonialist and racist. We have a uh, a jingle that, you know, pops up nearly every episode that's just fuck colonialism because it's just inescapable and unavoidable and you find these patterns throughout everywhere. I mean, one of the things that we have, you know, I say we, but I'm, I'm doing this podcast by myself for the, you know, the last couple of years. Um, but, you know, one of the things I've learned through years of doing this work is the patterns that emerge all over and how, you know, you have to look at global history because these patterns and these, these similarities that just exist in the base human experience and culture. Um, and it's really interesting to see the ways that those have been kind of interpreted and then also manipulated through time. Can you talk a little bit about the stories that you go into in the book, like where you're kind of focused and how you picked, how you picked what went in and what gets left out? Because obviously you can't do every single thing in a, you know, what, 300, 200 page book, something like that.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. And I was really keen as well that, you know, I didn't I couldn't possibly talk about every single thing. And I also couldn't do justice to any kind of chronological narrative. So the book, you know, Mm. it doesn't start with around, prehistoric yeah. people and move up to the present day. Um partly because there would be so much I'd have to leave out that, that would it would be a really partial story, partly because also I really wanted to challenge the idea that there has been any kind of linear growth. Yes. Um, so instead, I guess what I wanted to do is all I knew that the stories I wanted to tell were the stories that make a lot of people say that's not trans history. That's just dot 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 mm. so that's just women trying to make their way in a patriarchal society or that's just people dressing up on the stage it's just drag or that's just queer sexuality it's not about gender um right. or that's just intersex history it's not trans history um and that ended up being how i kind of structured the book so there's a chapter for example on trans histories and social roles people who've taken on social roles that have made them be gendered differently by their society um mm. Or there's chapters on histories that are both intersex history and trans history, or chapters on people whose sexuality or sexual behaviour has made them understand their gender differently or made other people understand their gender differently. Um, And that, I guess, is for a couple of reasons. First of all, it's about expanding what we think of as trans history. um, And I want to be really clear that I'm drawing a distinction between saying these people are trans people and saying this history is trans history and i think that is really important um
0: i was i was going to bring that up i was like i recently saw like you you did a you had a tweet that had a really wonderful uh really wonderful statement that was just you know how do we how do we distinguish between this person was trans and this has a place in trans history and i think that we approach it that way too is We don't know how this person identified. We don't know how this person behaved other than what happened to be written down. But we can still claim that as experiences and stories that are resonant to us in this current understanding and experience. Yeah,
1: absolutely. That's really clear, I think. Um, And and related to that we are not the only people who can claim those experiences as resonating with us, right? So there are plenty of people in the book with whom both trans people and other groups can feel solidarity and connection. And I really wanted to get away from the idea that we are somehow fighting over these histories. Um, right. This what is effectively a kind of capitalist logic that says, I own this history. No, I own this history. There's only so much history to go around and we have to claim it and fight over it. And in fact, my emotional connection to a person of the past does not take away someone else's emotional connection to a person in the past. Right. Um, one of the people I write about in the book is Anne Lister, well-known 18th century British person who a lot of lesbians feel really important connection to, who expressed their attraction to women in their amazing coded diaries in really, really clear terms, um, but who was also gender non-conforming in the way that they dressed, who wrote um, in their diary about not wanting to be seen as a woman by the people that they were in relationships with. And so that means that a lot of trans people can feel connection to that too. And that doesn't mean that we're saying Anne Lister was trans or was a lesbian. It means we're saying, lots of different groups can feel a sense of community and solidarity with them. So you asked about the specific stories that I talked about. I'll tell you about one of my favorites, and then we can talk about kind of more of them um, as well, if you like. But one of my favorites, and perhaps because of the sense of community and solidarity that I feel with this person, is an early American trans and intersex piece of history. Who This is a person who lived in early what was known then well, it still is known as Virginia, but what was newly known then as Virginia, who went sometimes by the name Thomas and sometimes by Thomasine Hall. And their story is fantastic because they become visible as part of a court case, initially, which is a court case about quote unquote fornication. So they've been having sex outside of marriage. But the court case very, very quickly becomes about what their gender is. Are you a man? Are you a woman? Um, Mm. And Thomas or Thomasine is on legal record as saying, I am both man and woman. Oh, wow. Which is just a fantastic thing to find in 1629 in a legal record. And, you know, as someone who is non-binary today, I don't think my experience for a moment is the same as Thomas or Thomasine's. But I find an enormous amount of resonance, as you put it, in reading their story. And But that piece of history, we know from descriptions of their body in the legal records, that piece of history is intersex history as much as it's trans history. And that's really important Mm. um, to emphasize as well that me saying it's trans history doesn't take away that. In sex aspect of it too.
0: They're new to me, um, so I'm really excited to to get into their story in the book. Um, I, you know, I, I recognize some stories that we've covered or have planned to cover. Uh, I think you you have a chapter on um, Kagema sex workers in Edo Japan, which we talk a little bit about in in one of our episodes. Um, and I think one of the, the one of the first chapters talks about Njinka, Njinka uh, uh, who I've been yeah. planning an episode on for for quite a while. Okay. Um, but I, I thought it was really interesting. interesting how you said like yeah the way that people's behavior or the way that people take on societal roles changes their societal gender Mm -hmm. too which is something that you know we have discussed so many times is the idea of like behavior and societal role versus like an inherent sense of identity has changed so much in terms of like gender uh understanding
1: definitely yeah And one of the things I talk about in the book as well is how also our ideas about like the relationship between the inside and the outside of change. Like if you were in early modern England, for example, in the 16th and 17th century, you put on different clothes that would, and I'm quoting, change the essence of who you were. I'm not quoting, I'm translating from early modern English. Hmm. But yeah, that would change the truth of your very nature to wear clothes associated with a different gender. And of course, now we just think of clothes as a costume that we put on, but that hasn't always been the case. So we, yeah, we need to be really careful about just assuming that everyone has always had this sort of essential unchanging gendered self and what you do doesn't affect it and what you wear doesn't affect it and that it's just more complicated than that
0: right i mean even just looking at the history of like female husbands or you know one of my recent episodes we talk about the mino in uh benin in modern day benin Mm. in um the Dahomey kingdom about how they would come into this army and and say that they are now men even though that actually changed nothing about their own like internal sense of gender the societal role and their societal gender changed So I really appreciate that uh, you specifically chose to focus on the quote unquote messy parts of not even just trans history, but just gender history, which I think as a whole society is like just starting to unravel a little bit. So why do you think it's important for people to to look at these overlooked stories? Why do you, and and specifically looking back in our history? Why do you think it's important for people to go backwards, whether we're queer people or allies, cis, straight people looking at this? What why do we go back? Why do we look at history and not what's happening right now?
1: Well, I think we should look at both um, and particularly at the way that these things are connected. Um, I think it's incredibly politically important to be looking at history. And this is for several reasons, really. One of the biggest is that a lot of the opposition to queer rights that we're seeing at the moment, and particularly trans rights, is based around the idea that this is a new thing, this is a new phenomenon. And either that means it's a trend, it shouldn't be taken seriously, or it means it's a new threat, we should be really vigilant against it. But either way, denial of history is a really, really key way in which our rights are being fought against now. And so raising awareness of the fact that actually it is not a new thing to experience gender in a fluid way. It is not a new thing to, quote unquote, redefine what constitutes gender or what counts as a man or what counts as a woman. This is something that has always been contested. Gender has never been something that's straightforwardly tied to the body or straightforwardly binary. It has always been up for debate and challenge and flux. Um Understanding that history is incredibly important for combating those oppressive narratives. And what understanding that history can also do is it can help us understand, as I said, the racist construction of the gender binary and the sex binary, which is incredibly important for fighting the entangled and intersecting oppressions that queer people and people of colour are experiencing. It can help us to treat really critically our ideas about what counts as a real trans person and whose gender should be taken seriously, who should have access to healthcare, who should have access to rights. I think we are in danger of, as we start more and more to fight our opponents on the terms that they've set, we are in danger of saying, oh, don't worry. you know, We know those, those non-binary people or those gender fluid people. You're right. They are confusing. They probably are just following a trend. But these trans men and trans women who have really solid, understandable genders and c- and conform perfectly to gender stereotypes, you can give them rights, right? And we're in real danger of eroding trans rights in pursuit of just clawing back a little bit of protection, and a little bit of respect from our opponents. And that's really dangerous because they're not going to stop with just, they're not going to stop with just erasing non-binary people, you know, trans men and trans women will mm-hmm. be next. Um. So right. it's a really, it's a really dangerous, but an understandingly tempting, understandably tempting tactic, and so I think not just telling trans histories, but telling that, as you say those messy trans histories, is a really essential part of that activism. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I want to go a little bit back to so when you were mentioning Ann Lister, you used they them pronouns, right? So let's have a let's have a conversation around language, right? Let's let's talk a little bit about. In that messy zone of talking about what is trans history, what is gender expansive history, um, you know, you're going to come up against the, the minefield that is language and how we use pronouns, how we use terminology. What approaches did you take when you were starting this work and going into the book uh, about what language you decided to use, whether it's pronouns or how how you were, were describing somebody or what language you found in your research that people were describing this person at the time or themselves?
1: Yeah, this was something I had to think a huge amount about, partly, as you say, because of pronouns, partly because of whether I was calling people in the past trans or not, or calling people from cultures that don't have a concept, of trans, trans or not, Mm -hmm. and partly because of the often violent language that is used against people in my sources. So those Mm -hmm. are all things that I had to... Think about. Um, In terms of trans labeling, um, like I said, I made the decision to talk about trans history, but not necessarily about trans people in the past, unless someone had used that word about themselves. Um, I wanted to treat people on their own historical and cultural terms. I could describe them as gender non-conforming because that's a behavior, but I really wanted to make sure that if I was using descriptive words about them, I was talking about behavior rather than about identity, not imposing labels on people in the past that they would not abuse themselves. Um I think. I was really careful about that, particularly because I've read a you know, that's a that's a standard part of your queer history 101, right? Don't don't impose right. labels on people in the past, <laughs> they don't use about themselves. But with trans history, a lot of cis historians are quite bad at that. They will say, right. you know, I'm going to talk about these people as um cross-dressing men because I don't want to impose a label on them. But you've imposed the label of cross-dressing and you've imposed the label of mount on those people. Mm-hmm. Um so actually, you know, that is imposing a label. And so I wanted to be really clear that I wasn't doing that either That in some ways this way of doing history is more objective than calling people quote unquote cross-dressing men so I wanted to do that in terms of pronouns I was really struck by you mentioned female husbands um and I'm sure you've talked about and read Jen Mannion's book female husbands um I was really struck by the way they talk about pronouns in their introduction where they say that you know assigning a gender to a pronoun is a kind of power and they were refusing that power by mm-hmm. using they them. I was equally conscious though that what a lot of people say when I talk about using they them pronouns and this comes up in trans awareness training as well is well if you call someone they and they didn't use they is that not a kind of misgendering in itself and so I wanted to think a bit about the three ways in which we use they in English you know we use it as plural we use it as actively gender neutral, like if we're saying this person is not a man or a woman, like you do to describe me. Um, or, But we also use it as passively gender neutral. We just don't know mm-hmm. someone's gender. Um, right. And uh, what I say in the book, and I re- wanted to be really clear about this, is I'm using they, them as passively gender neutral. And I'm using it in some ways also as plural. I was quite influenced by the historian Marjorie Rubright in this, who says, you know, you can leave room for plural possibilities by using they mm. to talk about someone. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, so that was how I made my decision on pronouns, unless I had a case of someone really clearly articulating I am a woman or I am a man. Like I talk about Roberta Cowell as she, for example, because. She writes, I am a woman a lot of times in her autobiography. So that was a really,
0: yeah. The, the best way is, you know, when you have that, it, it feels like, uh, it feels like hitting the jackpot is if you can find a primary source in which somebody so clearly using the language that they had available to them at the time. Explaining their own experience of identity, like we use that when talking about Claude Cahun, and they have you know, uh, that th- which is one of my favorite episodes we've ever done. You know, they have a very specific quote where they say, you know, I- I'm I'm upset that we don't have uh, a neuter gender in English, right? Like, if I could describe myself, I would be neuter, neither nor, you know. And it's uh, or the ways in which we see um, Vita Sackville-West talk about you know their own experience and their in their writings and um yeah so so how did you kind of start your research like where where did you go for these sources what was your process
1: it was a real mixed bag and that's particularly because so i wrote this book in twenty twenty and 2021 um so access to you know (laughs) libraries and archives was somewhat more limited than um, i might ideally have hoped um
0: who knows why
1: who knows why um nobody remembers that so um what was a real positive (laughs) of that time was that a lot of archives um, and libraries made their sources temporarily available online and I really fervently hope that that doesn't go away partly because it makes it a lot more accessible to people who aren't affiliated with academic institutions and partly also because it reduced the carbon footprint of my book enormously that I didn't have to (laughs) kind of fly to the US and go to archives and things like that um so this was a book that was kind of a long time, as I said, a long time in coming because I'd been thinking about these issues for a while and I'd been amassing these stories and giving a lot of talks about them and stuff like that and was finally, I was having the opportunity to write about them. So I was able to gather together all of these um, notes that I'd made in happier times when I was able to go to more places. Um, <laughs> but I also, um, you sort of cast my net quite widely with sources like the old Bailey Court Records online, Just seeing who comes up when you type in dressed as a woman, all these stories that haven't really been told before. Exactly. And similar with language um, from kind of earlier sources that you can type into databases and um, find what comes up and then follow up those stories. And what was the kind of biggest and most interesting challenge is that often there would be kind of several sources on a particular individual, um, which obviously came from quite a hostile place. And so reconstructing Mm -hmm. that individual's own experience took a lot of kind of empathy, I suppose, to think through, well, we know they responded in this way to this experience because, you know, this hostile person is writing about how they responded. What can we understand about what that person might have been thinking and feeling and how can also we quote these sources without reproducing the violence that's in them um right i wanted for example to not include intimate and non-consensual descriptions of people's bodies um Mm. i wanted also to correct misgendering in sources using square brackets so that it's indicated but i don't think it's necessary to repeat the misgendering that someone can find in the real source if they go to it i didn't feel my book needed to participate in that process Mm. (laughs) um And that was particularly the case with people where a lot of the accounts are from kind of anthropological sources. Um, Particularly when I was writing about two spirit people, there are a lot of accounts which are incredibly racist, incredibly transphobic, incredibly violent. So I needed to, I could piece together the story from those sources, but I wasn't going to quote those sources and reproduce All of the oppressions that they perpetuated. I wanted instead to write a narrative that was affirming, that yes, used the facts that I knew from um, those early anthropological sources, but that didn't reproduce their ideologies.
0: Right. Didn't center the experiences of people around them and tried to recenter it on their narrative of the people. Uh, Yeah. Exactly. I, I really appreciate that. So one one of the things that we, we do a lot on this show, too, is we kind of connect the ways that, like, media is uh starting to pick up queer historical stories. You talk about, you know, a significant number of people in the book and you've you've mentioned that there are some that are, you know, some of your favorites. Um either it folks that you've covered in the book or just in your own like queer historical life uh if you could see any queer historical figure's life story adapted for like TV or film, what would you most want to see?
1: Oh, goodness. There are a couple of really good candidates, both of whom lived in North America, actually. So um, great um, to bring up here. Now, I I mentioned Thomas or Thomasine Hall again. I just want to go back to them, first of all, because they have a ridiculously amazing life story. So they're born in Newcastle in the northeast of England. Um, They live as, as far as we know, as a woman for a little bit. Um, then they go down to the south coast of England. They live as a woman making lace. They live as a man fighting in a war on the, um, near the Channel Islands near France. They live as a woman again. They emigrate to North America. And as far as we can tell, when they emigrate to North America, they basically live part of the time as a man and part of the time as a woman. Um, because mm. different people in their community are convinced that they're a man or convinced that they're a woman at different points. <laughs> they're a servant. They may have engaged with, in sex work as well. They have at least one relationship with someone who is probably another servant. And then the sentence that comes out of their court case is not you have to live as a man or as a woman, it's you have to make it really clear that you're both, you have to wear a mixture of male and female clothing at all times. Um, And that is that is a double edged sword, you know, it's affirming, but at the same time, it's removing any possibility of fluidity or flying under the radar. Um, Right? Yeah so but but that's an incredible story of someone in the early 17th century basically being legally commanded to live as non-binary
0: yeah it was i was like legally codifying androgyny that's wild
1: it is so that's that's a story i'd love to see i'd also love to see the story of um the two-spirit person who i focus on in the book Kaushima Nupika, um who has again just a ridiculously fantastic life story there was the entire length of the columbia river with their wife that's thousands of miles wow um and they were an intertribal mediator they were a prophet they were someone who they had an earlier marriage um, to a white fur trader and then left him and came back to their own community they lived a life that has so far been mostly talked about in terms of ridicule in a lot of the anthropological Mm. sources but in fact they were an incredibly important figure in terms of prophecy and spiritual importance um, as well as in terms of diplomacy and being a guide and kind of leading people um, around the area that they knew really well and I'd love to see their adventures and their spiritual importance celebrated rather than people always trying to pick holes in it which is kind of what a lot of people have done so far.
0: Cool. Um, well, what do you, I mean, there's a lot, I think, that people could take <laughs> with them from reading before we were trans, but if there's, like, one thing that you want people to pick up after reading it, what would you say is, like, your, your, your ideal goal of, like, okay, somebody's read this book, and now this is how they're moving through the world, knowing these stories?
1: That's so hard to pick one thing, <laughs> but I hope that people will take away from it the promise that neither the body nor the society that we live in nor the ideas we're raised with define what gender can be and how we can live it and i think that's incredibly politically important as i've said but it's also liberating for everyone cis or trans um the book is about the way that fluid and fleeting and complex and messy and playful gendered experiences still count and are still meaningful. And I hope that everyone will feel more empowered to play with gender and to validate other people's play and to think of it as a low stakes problem. If, you know, a young person wants to experiment with their gender, what if they change their mind? People say, so what? What if they do? Let them have an amazing time playing with their gender and they might change their mind or they might not. And either of those possibilities is fantastic. I hope that's what people take away.
0: Right. Yeah, it's there's no situation in which exploring your own understanding of yourself is a negative thing, you know. Whether you decide through this exploration that you're cis, or that you're trans, or that you you're like cool, you know what? I actually am really confident and and happy in in the gender that I was assigned that that's just a net positive is congratulations you now have explored and done introspective work and known a little bit more about yourself and maybe you can kind of break out of you know this has helped you figure out what things society is putting on you that don't necessarily have to be the ways in which you experience your own gender um yeah i really love that uh, so, so this, so this book, you know, has has just come out this year. Is just coming out in the U.S. September thirteenth. That's that right. The yeah. date, yes. Hopefully I will have this out by then. Uh, What projects are you working on now? Is there anything kind of new and exciting in the pipeline? I'm sure you're doing a whole bunch of these kind of conversations talking about the book. But Yeah,
1: it's been lovely to have a chance to talk about the book a lot. Um, What I'm doing next, um, I do have books under wraps, um, but what I'm doing next that I would love to talk about um, is a project with a museum here in Leeds in the UK, the Royal Armouries, which has some fantastic hidden trans histories that i'm going to be working um with a local trans artist luna morgana on bringing out um people might have seen it on social media or if not they can look it up um that we co-created a zine with the local trans community about a one object that they have in the royal armories a sword that was commissioned by the chevalier deon, um who doesn't make it into my book but is an amazing um 18th century piece of trans history that everyone should look up if they haven't heard of them and um it's a fantastic sword as well because it's an example of female self-identification. The Chevalier refers to herself in female terms in the inscription on this sword. And I'm going to be working with the Royal Armouries to dig up more hidden stories of gender and spreading more widely a toolkit for uncovering hidden gender stories in museums that I developed with a colleague called James Daybell to museums around the country and around the world. So really excited about doing that um, and about writing some more stuff around queer history scene too.
0: Oh, fantastic! I'm, I'm really excited to see that. I, I I saw about the the zine. I really want to... I, uh, I think you can, you can download the, the PDF of it, right? We'll throw a link somewhere in the show notes. Is there anything else that you wanted to talk about or mention that we haven't already discussed?
1: I think we've covered all of the things that I would really want to say. <laughs> Thank you so much.
0: Well, thank you so much for hopping on here and having this conversation with me. I have not gotten a chance to finish the book. I've like bounced around and gone through various chapters, but I'm really excited to dive fully in and I hope that people will pick it up. Where can people find more about you and your work and follow you on various internet places like social media? Find out what you're doing next.
1: Uh, If you want to follow me on Twitter, I'm KR Hayem. I'm the only Kit um in the world as far as I know, so do... um find me on twitter if you want it and i will definitely update um with all the stuff that i'm doing and thank you so so much for having me and i hope that you enjoy the
0: book thank you